The second scripture reading today is from the book of Esther. You can find it on page 487. We're continuing on now to chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Please stand if you're able. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In my house, one of our favorite movies is the 2012 suspense drama, Argo. I don't know if you've seen this one. It's a great movie, true story of things that happened shortly after I was born, when I was uh, two years old or so. I don't remember hearing about it on the news, but the movie is much more exciting than the actual events in many ways. It's about uh, when uh, Islamists in Iran rushed the embassy, the American embassy, and took it over. 66 Americans were taken hostage, and six of them snuck out, slipped out the back door, and were taken in by the Canadian ambassador and his wife and hidden in their home. But the moment they were hidden, they knew they were on borrowed time, that there would be house-to-house -house searches, that, that even with Canada, the, the relations were tenuous and breaking down, and so they had to work 
fast. And the CIA started throwing out plans. How can we do this? We can go in and pretend to be English teachers, but they know there's no English teachers. We can go in and pretend we're Canadians helping with planting crops, but it's the wrong season. And finally, this guy said, I have a crazy idea. We go in pretending to be a Canadian film crew, and we are scouting locations for a space movie called Argo. And it's, it's a really exciting thing. They had to actually start creating the sets and the, the office and the, the wardrobes and all the rest. And they were able to pull it off. And at the end of the movie, uh, the, the guy who masterminded it, took all the risk, did all this stuff, is told, you are going to get the intelligence star for what you did. The highest honor anyone in the clandestine service can get. And he says, oh, oh well, let's, let's try and do it on a Friday. I can bring my son. He said, no, no, no. Nobody can be there. And as soon as you get it, you have to give it back. That's how this stuff works. It's off the books. This, this is why you got in the CIA, right? Not for applause. And then he, he does this, and he has to give it back, and that's the end of the movie. But of course, because we're watching a movie about it, it was all in 1997, we know, declassified. And out came all this stuff, and suddenly this man is a hero, 18 years after doing all these things. And then in 2012, he gets to go and watch a movie about himself, and he gets to be Ben Affleck. And I think, guys, all of us would agree that's the dream. But this is a long time to wait for overdue honor and thanks and being lifted up and acknowledged and recognized. The Bible is full of stories like this. We remember when Joseph was in prison, he was falsely accused, he's in, he's in uh, Pharaoh's dungeon, and there he's talking with Pharaoh's former head uh, bread baker and his former head cup bearer, and he tells both of them, listen, I know you've been having dreams, and you think these dreams are messages from God, turns out I'm good at this stuff, and he tells one of them, the baker, yeah, in not too long you're going to be put to death, and it happens. He says the other one, in not too long you're going to be reinstated. You're going to be exonerated and brought back into the king's presence. And when that happens, just do me a favor. Don't forget about me, little old Joe here in the dungeon. Well, he's reinstated. And for two years, he does forget about him. Until one night, the king, the pharaoh, cannot sleep because he keeps having a troubling dream. And the cupbearer says, oh, yeah, there was that one guy who could interpret dreams because his God gave him the ability. And that is the beginning of a huge reversal in the life of Joseph. He's brought up out of the dungeon. He successfully interprets the dreams. He's given all sorts of honors and becomes essentially second in command over the entire Egyptian empire almost overnight. We have a very similar story here in Esther chapter 4. There has been a great service done to the king and it is long overdue for someone to be rewarded for it. I will quickly recap the book of Esther. At the beginning, Queen Vashti is deposed for uh, unfair reasons. And then of all the beautiful women in all of Persia, Esther, a Jewish girl, is chosen to replace her. She had been living with her cousin slash adoptive father, Mordecai, who then also was a guard in the gate, inside the gate complex. As the book continues, then Esther becomes queen, Mordecai learns of a plot to kill the king, exposes it, saves the king's life. And right about when we would expect him to be rewarded for it with a promotion of some kind, instead, a wicked man named Haman is promoted and made second in command over all of Persia. He, because of a long, literally millennia-old beef with the Jewish people, hates them. He's very anti-Semitic. 
And when he walks by and he sees that this one guard, Mordecai, won't fall down and bow to him and tremble before him, he decides he is going to kill all the Jews, every last one of them in the Persian Empire. He gets the king to take the signet ring and give it to him and say, go ahead and, and sign my name, put my signet on whatever you want. And so he casts some lots to determine the day that they'd all be put to death and puts the king's stamp of approval on it. Hearing about this, all of the Jewish people, including Mordecai, put on sackcloth and ashes and weep and wail. Only Queen Esther in her palace is kind of clueless, saying, what's going on? And when she finds out, Mordecai says, you need to do something about this. Perhaps God has put you in the position he's put you in for such a time as this, this moment. Esther then, she steps up. She says, I want everyone to fast and pray with me. And she starts her plan in motion. It begins with her having a banquet where she brings both the king, Ahasuerus, and Haman into her chambers. And she says, listen, I do have something I want to ask, but I'm going to ask you tomorrow at a second banquet. Haman goes home. He's feeling great as he walks out of the banquet. He's thinking of all the people in all of Persia, I'm the only guy who gets invited to two banquets in two days like super VIP elite gatherings with the royal couple. I'm amazing. And then he sees that one guy, Mordecai, who doesn't fall down, doesn't bow to him, and it ruins everything. And he goes home, and he says to his wife, why won't he bow to me? And he's all upset. And he gets his friends and his wise men all around him, and they say, listen, there's only one thing you can do. Yes, you're going to kill all of his people at the end of this year, but you just got to get this out of your system. Deal with it now. Kill him publicly tomorrow. Today, you should build a gallows 75 feet tall. Probably this is not the kind of structure we think of in the Old West where you hang people with a rope, but rather a really large pole on which someone would be impaled. And then tomorrow, go into the king and you work your magic with him and make it so. Make it so that this guy is publicly killed. Then you'll feel better going to that other banquet tomorrow. Because it's all about you, Haman. And that's about where we leave off. Now, from a human perspective, it looks like it's all over for God's people. Esther's plan is sort of floundering. And Haman's star is only rising. What could they do but simply wait for the day of their destruction? Some, though, have used the word peripatia to describe chapter 6 here, which means a sudden or unexpected reversal of circumstances or situation, especially in a literary work, and that is what we see here. Things have been building to a head and building to a head, and now, in God's providence, there will be a massive reversal. The great Puritan Richard Sibbs Writing about providence said this, There is nothing so high that is above God's providence, nothing so low that is beneath it, nothing so large but is bounded by it, nothing so confused but God can order it, nothing so bad but he can draw good out of it, nothing so wisely plotted but God can disappoint it. And here we see God in his providence just going boom, 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 boom and putting every last piece to this massive plan in order. And we see that in a book where God's name is not mentioned even once, he has been tirelessly at work for the good and salvation of his people. It's almost comical how many things fall into line in this chapter and how the timing is just right. I don't know if you've ever heard, read, or watched a, a series of books and television show slash movie, a series of unfortunate events. 
It's kind of funny how many bad things can happen to these two, three kids, I guess. But this would be a series of fortunate events, if not for the fact that fortune implies just luck. You know, the word comes from Fortuna, a, a goddess that personifies luck and chance. Rather, this is a series of providential events. God has been setting all these dominoes up now for years, as we've been reading. He's been putting them on, and he doesn't set them all in order, like if, when you were a kid and I was a kid and we put them, no, he's putting them in kind of almost randomly until at one point, zooming out, you see, oh, I see the shape you're making, and then he's ready to tip them. The last one to complete the row here is King Ahasuerus's insomnia. Yeah, that's a, that's a little detail. There are details here that the, write, the reader might think are unnecessary as you're reading. You say, why would they waste precious ink and vellum on that? And then you find out later that they are actually vital pieces of the puzzle. Now, if this were fiction, I, I've written some fiction, uh, and my wife is a now rather prolific fiction writer, I can tell you that uh, you don't want to rely a lot on coincidence. It's sloppy. It's lazy. When you're watching a, a movie and you see something happening, you go, wait, if that hadn't happened, this whole thing wouldn't have worked out? That's a little thin. You're reading a book. I've given up on books because of that. But I do love a good plan. And if I'm watching like an Ocean's Eleven type movie and they've, they've put all the pieces of the heist in place and at the last minute you find out there were a couple pieces you didn't know about and the whole thing works perfectly and they walk out with all the loot, I always go, oh, that was satisfying. That's more the kind of story we have here than blind coincidence. It's just that the one who's been working out the elaborate plan is not only unseen, but even unnamed here. And to make sure we recognize who's at work, the, the author goes out of his way to emphasize that our heroes, Mordecai and Esther, are sleeping this whole time. This stuff is going on during the dead of night. And yet the enemies of God's people, Haman and Ahasuerus, are wide awake and working their wicked plans and plots. Neither Esther nor Mordecai even knows of the immediate danger Mordecai is in. How could they? And God does not sleep. So while they are sawing logs here, completely oblivious, he is preparing and has been preparing for exactly this moment, for such a time as this, if you will. Waiting on the Lord, it has been said, does teach us patience. That is true. But often waiting on the Lord involves a lot of other stuff. God putting those last pieces in place. And I go, oh, I don't like this piece. And God says, listen, this is necessary to what I am doing. Not only perhaps for you, but for your neighbor or your coworker or your total stranger who I also love. The book of Esther, if you actually take the, the plot and, and the elements of it and the chapters of it and diagram it is a perfect what we call chiasm. You might say, do you mean chiasm? No, I'm not a frat boy. I've studied biblical Greek, a chiasm. And that means it's kind of X-shaped like this or really kind of V-shaped that the very beginning and the very end answer to each other. And the second thing and the second to last thing answer to each other. And the third thing, and the, like that, all the way down until you get right here to the kind of climax point. And yes, Richard, you're right, RoboCop is also a perfect chiasm, if that helps. But the, the interesting thing is that they don't know that. How could they? They've only gotten down to the middle. And at the beginning of the X, what is it? It's down, 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 until you come to this point where God is going to make this sudden reversal and things are going to start 
looking up. So the king can't sleep. Literally, the Hebrew says the sleep of the king fled. I don't know about you guys, but I know exactly what that's like. I have had quite a bit of insomnia for 13 years. I don't know what changed 13 years ago in my life, uh, but for some reason I, I couldn't sleep at that point. <laughs> oh, there he is. Uh, something about being on edge about, is he crying? Do I need to get up? And, and it never went away, even though he never wakes up needing to be fed now. Uh, but, you know, there's times when you just, you can't. It's gone. You can't sleep. You try and your mind is just in drive and, and you are helpless. And, and it, some have suggested, you know, maybe it was the building of the gallows outside was loud. And that was what kept him awake. Come on. We really think the, the king of the Persian Empire is going to say, oh, those darn neighbors, and put a pillow over his head. He's going to say, go kill whoever's making all that noise so I can sleep, or at least stop them. We're not told what it is that keeps him awake, other than to assume it is God himself keeping him awake. And this is not unprecedented. To me, whenever I can't sleep, I think this is so stupid. A waste of time. This is time I could use tomorrow to be productive. I'll say, God, I could use the time, you know, right now, if I could sleep, I could wake up and be more productive as your servant, serving your people in the congregation. Don't you want that, God? Never wondering maybe if he has a plan and there's something at work in my insomnia. It's almost like it's too small a thing. Such an insignificant element in the book of Esther, a book chock full of plots and assassination attempts, attempted genocide, and the peak here in the middle that changes everything, the climax is going to be a guy can't fall asleep? Again, we've seen it before in God's word. In Genesis 20, Abimelech could not sleep, and we find out it was God keeping him awake because of, of Sarah being in his harem. In Genesis 41, Pharaoh can't sleep. In Daniel 2.1, we read Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And in Daniel 6, Darius couldn't sleep because he'd been tricked into ordering the death of Daniel and he was worried about his friend. But here we're not told why. Only we see that God is at work. In my own life, I've, I've had absolute irrefutable evidence that God can use my insomnia there was one night, uh, years and years ago, I couldn't sleep. It had been several nights where I couldn't. I got so angry, I got up to do the thing that makes the most sense, which was I was going to get on Facebook and rant about how I couldn't sleep. Because I thought, maybe everyone would just feel bad for I don't know how this helps. And I opened Facebook, and there I saw Cliff Raymond saying, I think my wife is breathing her last. It's 3.30 a.m. I immediately ran, put on some clothes, got in my car, drove down there, and spent the next three hours with Cliff while Hazel died. I was able to be there with her and for him. And I look back and go, why couldn't I sleep? Probably because God was keeping me awake. And I've often poo-pooed when people say, well, when you can't sleep, it's a good chance to pray. And I go, you've obviously never had insomnia. You can't even focus enough to pray. You're so sleepy, but you're so wide awake at the same time. Maybe it's a good time to just go through and say, is there something that God would have me do? Is there something I need to confess to him? Is there something I need to commit to doing? Is there, is there something that God is at work in my spirit, that his spirit is at work convicting me or, or inspiring me or drawing me to himself? Well, this isn't how Ahasuerus is thinking. He thinks, well, I can't sleep. What should I do about it? All the amusements available to this guy, from his harem to you know, the choice food and drink, 
to entertainment of all different kinds. They're all going to stimulate him. And so he thinks, what's the most boring thing in the world? Government records. I use a thing at night called Calm. It's an app on my phone. And last night I listened to Killian Murphy very sleepily describing a train ride through Ireland, which is something I care zero about, and I was out like a light very quickly. That's kind of like what happens here. It's like reading the tax code almost, although it's including some of the great adventures of the king himself. He's probably figuring maybe it'll put me to sleep. Maybe it will remind me how great I am, and I won't mind being awake. So he brings in someone. They start reading through the royal archives. We don't know how far back they started, but we do know that the event in question happened five years earlier. Perhaps he opened it at random. Perhaps he picked up where he'd left off the last time the king couldn't sleep. Whatever the, the case, God is at work as this book is open to exactly the right spot in order to carry out God's purpose. It reminds me very much of the conversion of St. Augustine, who had a, a very godly mother who prayed for him again and again, day after day, that he would turn from his sin and repent and follow Jesus. And he kept saying, God, I'm going to follow you, but not yet. I'm having too much fun. And one day he was just kind of disquieted in his spirit. It wasn't insomnia. It was almost a waking insomnia. And he heard children outside the garden he was sitting in playing a game in which they sang the words tole lege, tole lege, again and again, which means take up and read. So he took up the closest book to him, the scriptures, opened it at random to Romans 13, 13, which says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And that was the last cut to the, the core and he fell to his knees and became a Christian. I don't advise that that's how you do your devotional reading. Just open at random and trust that God and his providence will always bring you to the right place. You've heard of the guy who tried that. He opened at random and pointed, and it said Judas went out and hung himself. He said, well, that's crazy. He uh, try again. Uh, go and do likewise. And then uh, he tried again. They said, what you do, do quickly. And he said, okay, I don't think I'm going to read the Bible anymore. I recommend reading through the Bible, uh, you know, at least reading through books of the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter, to understand them in their context. But God is at work in his providence here when this book is opened up. And what he hears about is, he already knows about it, but he's forgotten the time that Mordecai the Jew, as he's called here, saved his life. Heard about this plot to kill him, and said, I can't let this stand, and went and exposed it. So instead of lulling him to sleep, these words give him a, a jolt. You ever been lying in bed and you suddenly remember something you forgot? That's a bad feeling. Oh, oh no! Well, this happens here. This is something he forgot that's important. And it might not seem like it's all that important for the king to have forgotten to reward someone, but it is in Persia. That the lavish rewarding of loyalty, of benefactors, was a core value in the Persian Empire. And that this went five years, and he asks the guy, what was done to reward that man? And he says, not really anything other than to write his name in the book. It was unacceptable. And now that the king is aware of the problem, it's urgent. He has to address it. And so he asks, is anyone in the court right now? Maybe he could hear somebody walking around in the outer court. Maybe he's just asking because, as we've seen, this king has yet to make a single decision on his own in this entire book without his friends or his advisors. 
And so regardless of the hour, it doesn't surprise us. He asks, is there anybody out there who could come in and, and help me with this? And remember, it's very late at night or very, very early in the morning. But yeah, Haman's out there. Haman's just showed up because Haman has something he wants to talk about. He's spent the night erecting these gallows, uh, whatever this structure looked like. He now wants to sell the king, which he thinks he can easily do on publicly impaling Mordecai. And he wants to be the first appointment in the morning. He wants to get it over with so that he can really again enjoy his tea time with the king and the queen. I find it so ironic. There's so much irony in this book, and this is kind of the center of all of it. So ironic. Both of these men are losing sleep. Both are preoccupied with this pressing desire to give Mordecai what he deserves, what he's got coming. And I know this might sound sacrilegious, but there's, I mean, there's something funny in here. There's something sitcom-ish, like Three's Company or Frasier or one of those where it's all rooted in a misunderstanding, which kind of ripples out and grows and grows, and all the comedy comes out of that. Here, these guys are frantically uh, wanting to discuss Mordecai, but they're completely talking past each other. They don't know what they're talking about. And, and actually, this is a comedy in, in classical sense because... It goes from something tragic to the resolution of it. Haman had earlier shrewdly, calculatedly kept the identity of this certain people that is a great threat to you, O king, from the king. He never names them. And here Ahasuerus unintentionally keeps the identity of this certain man that he wants to honor from Haman. And so we have all this misunderstanding, miscommunication. Haman, though, hears, what should I do for the man that the king wants to honor? And immediately, his internal compass points selfward, which it almost always does. And he thinks, who could he be talking about but moi? And so this is just more good news for him. He's trying to take it all with a grain of salt because so much good stuff is happening for Haman lately. Everything's coming up, Haman. Now, sandwiched between these two super-exclusive VIP banquets with the royal couple is going to be an even higher honor. Something even greater, more public. I've got it coming, though. I deserve it. So his answer comes, and it is over the top. One could read this as Haman getting a little carried away and kind of this, this spinning out of control as he starts describing this fantasy of a royal parade for him. You know, put him in robes that the king has wore, then, like on a horse the king has ridden, and the horse has a crown, even, and then you parade him around. I don't think that's the case. I think he immediately knew what he was going to say. I think he had this answer in the chamber ready to go. He had been daydreaming about this for years and years, like how little girls allegedly fantasize about their dream wedding, or someone who's really into acting might have perfected their, their Tony Award acceptance speech while holding a shampoo bottle in the shower. He uses the word royal and king again and again and again in this passage. For Haman... His former drugs of choice, wealth and power, no longer do it for him. He's already got all the wealth that he could want, and he's got more coming now when this thing happens at the end of the year. He's already got as much power as he can get without the king dying. Now he wants honor and praise. He wants to be loved. Do you rather be feared or loved? Michael Scott says, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Haman says the same. And so he comes in with this answer. The word honor is used seven times in this passage. Of course, you know in biblical parlance, seven is the number of uh, perfection, completion. He wants complete honor. 
And as he gets into the specifics, we see that there's just covetousness and avariceness is running rampant in this man. He already has the king's ring, which he can use to do almost anything that he wants, but he still covets more. And so he says, yeah, I'd like uh, this guy, I'd like you to throw on him robes that you have worn. That's a big deal. In carvings and reliefs, Persian kings are depicted wearing robes decorated with concentric circles and lion imagery. There would be absolutely no mistaking whose robes this person is wearing as they go through the streets. It wouldn't just be nice robes. It would be, wow, that's the king's robe that that guy is wearing. And the Persian royal robe was thought, at least by slightly later Greek historians, to possess magical powers and, and actually convey a measure of royalty to whoever wore them. This is a big, big suggestion. Put him on the horse that the king has ridden. The king's horse was an extension of his throne. To to us as the reader, this is a transparent power grab. This should make the king a little bit nervous, I think. The next time he he shares a cup of wine with Haman. To to anyone watching this happen, if Haman were placed on a horse the king had ridden, and covered with a garment the king had worn, and you have the the royal diadem on the horse, the crest, and out he goes, it would look clearly as if he was the heir apparent. Chosen by the king, the king saying, I choose him to succeed me should anything happen. And of course, the only way you became king in the Persian Empire was when something happened to the guy before you, and usually, you'd done it. And so it seems like Haman is indeed looking, he's got his eye on the throne. He's got to be excited about this. He's got to be very excited that whoever these nobles are who honor him are going to be beneath him in station. And there's the bonus that as they go through the streets, the city streets, probably the way to understand this Hebrew text is through a kind of central city square, starting in the the gate complex. As he does this, Mordecai, his enemy, is going to have to watch him be lifted up the very morning that he himself is put to death by Haman. And he's got to be thinking, this is such sweet, delicious irony. Oh, you don't know the half of it, buddy. And so the king says, you know what? Yeah. Let this be done. Yeah, yeah. To Mordecai the Jew. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. My Persian's a little rusty. But I think I would have known when he got that news just by watching his face. This fantasy of all the noblest nobles attending to Haman shatters, and now Haman himself, all by himself, has to go and honor his sworn enemy. I have to imagine that, that, I mean, he's a little clueless, but as Haman went out to do it, the king must have said, oh, wait, you were in the outer chamber. Was there something you wanted to talk to me about? Never mind. Can't very well say, oh, yeah, I wanted to kill the guy you just told me to honor. That would seem like treason. So they go out into the city streets, and again, they're probably in the open city square. And so this is the place where Mordecai has been the day before wearing sackcloth and ashes. And now everyone sees him wearing the king's robes, sitting on a steed, a royal steed, which has the royal crest on its head. If you look at pictures of him, it's almost like pulling the hair of the horse up at the top in like a... I don't know, like an equine scrunchie. It looks kind of cool. It's very, very regal. And the end result in all of this honor-seeking is ultimately Haman's humiliation. It was no secret to anyone what Haman thought of the Jews in general and Mordecai in particular. 
And now he's forced to publicly sing this guy's praises for all of Susa to see. And this is just the beginning of his downward trajectory. The honor that's bestowed on Mordecai here, I don't think we can overstate. He's not made second in command like Joseph was. But when you read about what happened when the king in that setting couldn't sleep and he called uh, the, the guy out of the, the dungeon and, and reversed his fortunes. We read in Genesis 41, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments uh, of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Okay, sounds good. I'd take it. But not the second chariot for Mordecai, the king's own horse. And not fine linen garments, but the king's own robes. There's almost too many ironic reversals to track in this passage, but notice this one. Mordecai and Esther, who were just a moment ago in the text, weeping and mourning and wearing sackcloth themselves, fasting and praying, are both wearing royal robes now. Well, Haman, who was just a moment ago celebrating and thinking that it was nothing but up, up, up for him, is in deep Morning. He leaves that place shamed, skulking away, covering his head, which in that culture was an extreme sign of shame. He goes back home and he, he just confesses it all. They're going to hear about it anyway. He says to his wife, his sons, his, his wise men, his friends, this is what happened this morning. I took your advice and I built the big thing and all I wanted to do was the right thing and impale somebody and this is what happened to me. And they, his yes men, we talked last week about how he has just yes men surrounding him who will only tell him what he wants to hear. <laughs> Even they are like, yeah, you're, you're in trouble. You're not going to make it, buddy. This is the beginning of the end for you. His fall has already begun. We know, having read this book, that the moment the lot fell, it sealed Haman's fall. Well, throughout all of this study, we've been saying if God is not even mentioned in this book, but certainly he's seen, where do we find Christ in the book of Esther? And we have seen Christ so clearly prefigured and we have seen how both Mordecai and especially Esther are very much types of Christ and foreshadowing what he will do in delivering us, the people of God, uh, ultimately from our sins. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile, the gospel is the power of salvation. I think what we see here is in the suffering earned by Haman. And if anyone ever earned some bad fortune, it was this guy. I mean... Bed made by Haman. Bed slept in by Haman. Okay, it's kind of satisfying to read. But Christ, Christ was dragged around a city. And he was not just made to take somebody who was his enemy and call them good. Rather, he was dragged around and humiliated. Naked, beaten, scourged. He did all this, not for his own sins. We earned it, and he paid it. What an amazing gospel message. When you read Haman, and you go, oh yeah, a whole book. I'm going, I can't wait for him to get it. And then he gets it, and it's fun. And then you look at the gospel and say, the whole book, I'm storing up wrath against the day of wrath. And then Jesus takes that wrath. It's not fun but wow, is it good news of great joy for all the peoples. That Christ himself is the man the king delights to honor, a phrase which is used several times in Esther chapter 6. 
And yet that honor comes via suffering because he is willing to be humiliated so that we can be lifted up. For us, this is perhaps the, the central gospel moment in the book of Esther. I have to suggest, perhaps for a Christian, this would be a beneficial exercise, by the way, in, in Christ-like thinking, to say, what is the, the one thing I would want most in the world? And what if I had to take it and bestow it on my worst enemy? Could I stomach that? Jesus indeed did that. Jesus, as he was nailed to the cross, said, forgive them. They know not what they do. The thing that was owed Jesus was eternal never-ending glory and praise and adulation. And yet, for us, he suffered and died so that we, his enemies, could have eternal glory and life to know him, enjoy him forever. In Hebrews 6.10, we read, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. It's, it's a crazy tension we have here where God does not call to mind our sins, and that's a comfort to us, but God will not forget our good deeds, and that's a comfort to us. God will not call to mind when I dropped the ball and was very Haman-like, but God will remember the rare occasion where I was the Mordecai, the Esther in the story. And as Christians, we live in this tension of knowing God is at work, standing on his promises, and yet wishing he would follow our timetable as we often are longing for a peripeteia, a reversal in our favor. But Jesus did not demand instant reward. Again, the one righteous man who could have in Hebrews 12, 2, we read, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I've often thought, if delaying gratification is indeed a mark of maturity, I have a lot more growing to go. I don't like waiting for things that I've been excited about. I don't like saying, you know what? I'm going to wait a little longer and save a little more so that this will be a little more secure. I like, I like having things now, like a kid on Christmas morning. That is part of our sin nature. That is part of our human fallenness. Jesus, though, he saw the joy set before him, and he saw that between him and that is the cross, and for our sake, went through this shame, scorning the shame, in order that then he would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. Often our reward seems too far away, even though we have the very reward of forgiveness of sins and acceptance into God's presence right now. We must be careful that this, this tension and this impatience that lives within us doesn't push us into a Haman point of view, a Haman mentality. That pride and arrogance of Haman in assuming he must be the guy that the king of all kings, King Ahasuerus, wants to honor, it strikes us as foolish, as stupid. It makes us shake our heads. It makes us laugh. But we're all guilty of this very same thing. Of thinking, well, the king of kings, he must be thinking, Zach's the guy I want to honor today. If I am struggling in something today or I'm having a bad day, I might even say to myself, well... God must have a really, really good day for me next week. That's a very Haman mentality. 
To think, oh, God's so lucky to have me in his crew. Compare that with the words of Jesus in Luke 17. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? This is the master being referenced. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. There's no way you can do enough good deeds, think enough good thoughts, make enough positive change in the world to do anything in God's sight but just your bare minimum duty. And even that we will not reach. That is why the grace of God is so important. That is why the gospel hinges on it. That is why when Haman says, I am worthy, we with the apostle John and the revelation have to say, no, he is worthy to receive power and honor and wisdom, etc., etc., etc. James 4 tells us God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let us be the humble ones receiving grace, not the proud ones opposed by the very hand of God. In Psalm 18, David writes, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. We see that absolutely happening right here in the book of Esther. Both at the same time, both in the same move, because this God and his providence has laid out his plan so perfectly. A drive for the applause and approval and praise of men will lead at best, at best, to disappointment and at worst to disaster, as it does for Haman. Things are going to get much worse for Haman as we continue reading. And it's because he wins the gold medal in seeking honor. His whole life is like, have you seen my Instagram? Have you seen how many followers? Have you seen how great I am? Have you seen how expensive my car is? And I want more. I want more. I want more. Seeking honor to the point where people have to acknowledge, hey, you're the best at seeking honor. But read Romans 12.10, in which the apostle commands the church, outdo one another in showing honor. That is the Christ-like approach. Not seeking honor, showing honor. To be like Mordecai in this case, who after all of this, think about Mordecai's point of view. He's in his house, knock at the door, his worst enemy. He's known this gallows is being built, probably. And he goes, I guess it's my time. Opens the door, and Haman goes, I'm here to put the king's robe on you, put you on the king's horse, parade you around while I shout, this is the one whom the king longs and loves to honor. After all that, what are you doing? I think I'm spending the next several hours, the rest of the day, just kind of basking in the glow. Now he goes back to work. He goes right back to the gate, and he says, I'm going to continue to serve as a humble servant. Or look at Esther. When she came into the king's presence, what does she say again and again? If it pleases the king, if it pleases the king, let me serve the king by making for you this banquet, and then I will ask you for my petition. You don't hear any of that from Haman. He walks right into the king's presence. I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. He's kind of clothed under a very thin veneer of let whoever this guy is that you want to honor have this, 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 and this. But they both know, or he thinks they both know what he's talking about. He's demanding. He's entitled. And he winds up finding that God opposes the proud. Let us go into the throne of grace, not like that, but rather humbly saying, Lord, if it pleases you, if it is your will, please 
Do this for me. Or this, Lord, we know that you are already at work, that your plans are beyond our ability to even fathom them. Thank you for even welcoming me into your presence that I come unbidden and you don't strike me dead like the kings of Persia would, but you welcome me as a son, as a daughter. And in all of this, remember, this book of Esther is a perfect chiasm. You can look at it from the beginning and see, oh, I see how this is going to end. But if you're living it, you don't know that until the story is already wrapping up. You have to trust that God is at work. You have to trust that the story, when it all is told, is not going to be a tragedy. That this story is going to be a story that glorifies God and showcases his covenant loyalty, his faithfulness to us as he delivers his people. He delivered them in Persia in the book of Esther. He delivered us at the cross and he will at the last Bring us into his presence for all eternity. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Esther chapter 6. We thank you for these ironic reversals. We thank you for passages and books of your, your holy word that are entertaining to us and even funny. We know, Lord, we often fail to see the humor in, in even the teachings of Jesus because we're so worried we're going to laugh at the wrong thing. But we thank you, Lord, that, that we see you have a sense of humor that we see you have a sense of irony, that we see that you are not a God who looks down at us like we are a bunch of little ants, but who is in our midst, knows our hearts, knows our fears, knows our grief, knows our, the hatred we struggle with and want to lose, know, knows who is struggling with lust, who is struggling with arrogance, who is struggling with whatever. Lord, we know that you are with us. And we pray that we would remember that you are at work and trust you and give ourselves over to your service and present ourselves as living sacrifices to you. In the holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen.